Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast Science Talk, hosted on October 17th, 2016. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... And I, I honestly see this as probably the, the most egregious case that I, I can think of for so many reasons. One is just the sheer number of people affected, uh, almost 100,000 people. That's Paul Mohai. And to tell you about Paul Mohai and where that audio comes from, I'm going to be talking right now to Robin Lloyd. She's a contributing editor at Scientific American. Full disclosure, she's also my wife. Uh, Robin, who's Paul Mohai and where'd the audio come from? Well, the audio came from a workshop in Detroit in April that I attended. It was about water infrastructure in urban areas. The workshop was organized and sponsored by the Institute for Journalism and Natural Resources. And that's where I met Mohai. He was one of the speakers. He's a professor at the University of Michigan School of Natural Resources and Environment, and he co-founded the Environmental Justice Program there. I'll tell you a little bit more what that means in a sec. Mohai was also a member of the U.S. EPA's National Environmental Justice Advisory Council for six years. That was starting in 2007. So that phrase, environmental justice, is kind of a buzzword. It's also a phrase used uh, specifically to describe or study or talk about the ways that pollution, water safety, lead poisoning, mercury levels, transit issues, and the like intersect with so-called social justice issues, so like bias, discrimination based on variables such as race, ethnicity, and social class. So Mohai talked with us about some of the early history of federal policy to address environmental justice. And then he made some comments about the leaded water crisis in Flint, Michigan, that we all know made national headlines starting last year. Just to review the Flint situation, that issue really started a year before in 2014 when the city changed its drinking water source from the Detroit Water and Sewerage Department, which treats water that comes from Lake Huron in the Detroit River, but so, so the switch was to sourcing the city's drinking water from the Flint River. And that water, un- <laughs> very unfortunately, had not been treated to inhibit corrosion in the aging pipes that delivered the water. And that ended up contaminating the local water with lead and creating a public health problem that affected thousands of children, among others. And as most of us know or have heard, lead exposure at certain levels in children can lower their intellectual functioning and IQ and performance in school. And the situation isn't over. There's a lot of legal activity and activism going on in Flint and the state of Michigan to resolve the issues that fell out of that. Finally, uh, during his talk with us, Mohai talked about two studies that he recently completed to look into factors affecting where hazardous waste facilities are located or sited in the United States. So during this talk, you will hear some questions and comments from some of the local journalists with uh, such media outlets as Michigan Radio and the Detroit Free Press, who also attended the workshop. And there's just one more point to clarify. Mohai is going to mention Leanne Walters. She's a parent in Flint who has been quite involved since early 2015 in trying to get the water crisis addressed. She eventually alerted an EPA official later that year about the health problems affecting her family after the water source was switched to the Flint River. And that's 
more or less when everything started to blow up and become a, a national story. Okay, so uh, without any further ado, we'll hear from Paul Mohai. I was a founder of the environmental justice program at Michigan with my colleague, Professor Bunyan Bryant, who's, uh, who retired uh, several years ago. And, uh, and I've been interested in this issue for uh, about 30 years now. And uh, just so you, you know what my perspective is, I'm mostly a quant quantitative researcher. And in 1987, when uh, this report, Toxic Waste and Race in the United States, came out and I read it, uh, it really got me interested in this issue. It was a national study that uh, had uh, quantitative empirical data. They used fairly sophisticated uh, statistical techniques to analyze it. And I was very interested in whether other studies like it existed. So uh, my uh, uh, Professor Brian and I did one of the first reviews about the uh, uh, kind of the state of the evidence and, and scientific knowledge at the time. We found maybe about a dozen more or so uh, studies. But we, but I I started with Professor Bryan, but I also went on to do other, uh, both local studies in the Detroit area and, and nationally, uh, looking at the patterns and, and looking to see uh, how important the magnitudes were and uh, being convinced that the disparities existed and that there is both a socioeconomic and a racial ethnic component. Uh, that, that's been a question that's been raised a lot. Is it race? Is it socioeconomic status? Uh, I think it's both. When you use multivariate statistical analysis, the racial disparities do not disappear. They, re they remain statistically significant. So, uh, and it's, when you think about the history of, uh, you know, slavery and Jim Crow and uh, uh, segregation, uh, I, you know, that a lot of the damage has been, has been done. And so uh, I think the, the, that legacy of, of uh, racism that we've had in the U.S. is, is, is part of the reason uh, why we, we still see the, 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 the racial dimensions emerge. So um, I have tried to follow other published papers that come out with empirical studies. I've done my own. But I've also been, I'm not, I don't consider myself an activist, but I like to make myself uh, available if I'm, uh, if I'm helpful. I have had a lot of relationships with, with activists and uh, with the uh, EPA and also with the state uh, uh, government. Uh, I was on EPA's Environmental Justice Advisory Council for six years. I was term limited, but back in the early 1990s, Professor Brian and I organized a conference that was called the uh, Michigan Conference on Race and the Incidence of Environmental Hazards, and that, and that got the attention of EPA. And he and I, and um, um, I think there was eight of us all together, were invited to to the EPA in September of 1990 to talk with the head of the uh, EPA, uh, William Riley, and uh, they were very persuaded by uh, our, our arguments, by the reports that we came out, and um, EPA began to uh, work on this issue. They came, they came out with their own report in 1992 called uh, Environmental Equity, Reducing Risk for All Communities. That, in 1992, that report was really important because that was the first official acknowledgement by the EPA or any agency of federal government that this problem was uh, a real problem and, and that something uh, needs to be done done about it. So, uh, and, and I've gotten a lot of calls from uh, journalists since uh, January asking for my views about the environmental ju justice dimensions of the Flint water uh, uh, crisis. And I, I honestly see this as probably the, the most egregious case that I, I can think of for so many reasons. One is just the sheer number of people affected, uh, almost 100,000 people. 
the severe health problems that the lead poisoning has caused, and I've gone two-thirds through the Flint Water Task Force report, I picked the estimate, or they said we know of 200 confirmed cases, and we think this is a vast underestimate of the number of children poisoned uh, uh, by lead in Flint. In addition to the spike in lead poisoning, there was also a spike in legionnaire, uh, incidence of legionnaire disease. I think 80 people uh, came down with it, and 10 people, around, uh, roughly Ten those numbers, died. Died, died from it. And uh, there's real, um, you know, serious concerns that that also was linked to the to the contaminated water. So let me let me first outline some of the uh, aspects of this case that that make it, I think, uh, not only a classic uh, case, but maybe one of the most, if not most, egregious cases. Uh, first of all, just demographically, uh, it fits the pattern. We have a community that's predominantly people of color, only 37 percent of the residents are, are white, 57% uh, are African American, uh, and there are other uh, uh, racial and ethnic groups uh, in there as well. Uh, it, its poverty rate is over 40%, more than twice the state average. So uh, this is very typical of the environmental justice cases uh, of which there have been a lot of um, publications and people have done case studies. Uh, I can't tell you the number. I, In fact, this, this case has got me starting to catalog them, but there are a lot of documented, uh, peer-reviewed publications that are looking at, this is what happened in this city, and, and uh, here is the problem, this is how the community respond, responded, this is the response they got, here are the cases uh, where the uh, activism succeeded, here are the elements, and I have to say, the media is always involved. If, if you look at all the cases where the residents got some relief, the media paid attention and, and publicized their, their story. And it could be local, but I, I can tell you if it goes national, uh, that is, um, uh, I, I can't think of a case that, that was successful where the media did not play an important role. And, and I think that the media has played an enormously important role. I, uh, I, have, I, I did not see the state really responding in any serious way. We, the, they responded by discounting all of the evidence, dismissing the residents, um, uh, uh, disrespecting them, uh, uh, treating them that if they were stupid. I heard uh, Leanne Walters being uh, interviewed, I think it was on uh, one of the morning shows. Um, she was saying, you know, when we complained, they treated us like we were stupid. And I cannot tell you, that's not an uncommon thing to hear from the residents. You hear it. I heard that when, uh, in uh, 20 years ago, when the Flint residents were, were protesting the um, uh, waste wood burning facility that they just have to extract some, some energy out of it. And one of the local activists, an African-American woman who has since passed on, who was a, a professor at the University of uh, Michigan, uh, Flint, uh, there was a court case uh, on it, and I was one of the expert witnesses, and uh, I had a chance to meet her. She says, Dr. Mohan, uh, when we go to these pub public hearings, they talk down to us and they think we're all stupid. And this is a tenured professor at the University of Michigan at Flint, and she's saying they 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 treat you know they talk to us as if we're stupid. And and this is this is very typical of these cases. So uh, you have in Flint obviously a very severe environmental problem. People actually uh, bringing their concerns within a couple months after the water was switched. The, the other thing that makes this so much an environmental justice case, it's, it's demographics, it's the environmental problem, but also look at how 
citizen concerns are treated. This lack of respect, uh, discounting people's claims, di dismissing their, their, their concerns, and even at the point when the state was kind of forced, and I think part of it was the mounting evidence, but it seems to me that an absolute critical part of that was the media attention, especially when it went national. Dr. So, Mohai, one of the things I liked about the most recent study you did, uh, looking at this, I think it had to do with the siting of hazardous waste. Yeah, which came facilities. first. <laughs> right. One of the one of the big questions has always been the chicken or the egg. Yeah, do exactly. people move? Do do people in poverty? Do people of color move to areas that have these kinds of facilities because it's cheaper to live there? Or do they cite these facilities where the poor people are? And and your study accounted for the chicken or the egg. Yeah, that, that, well, that's right. And we looked uh, just so we can make the, the the research project manageable. We just looked at commercial hazardous waste facilities cited uh, in the U.S. We did a kind of a com complete in as complete as we could make it on the public record <laughs> of, the, of those facilities. And we found uh, we researched when they were built. And we asked the question. Uh, what were the demographics at the locations that eventually got the, the facilities before or right at the time of siting? Uh, were they, you know, disproportionately poor? Were they disproportionately uh, people of color? Or was that not the case, but once the facility got sited there, did they trigger those demographic changes? And what we found was uh, the answer initially looks like it's both. You see a pattern of disproportionately placing them in people of color, poor communities, and you see the disparities increasing over time. But what we found when we went back uh, to before the facilities were cited, that the demographic changes were already occurring before the facilities were, were uh, cited. So like we looked 1970, 1980, 1990, and 2000, uh, the, the decline in white percentages around these sites. Well, facilities that were cited in 1980 and 1990, they were all already losing whites. And, 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 and I was just struck at how straight the line was. There's no, there's just not even a kink because the facility was, was placed there. So it's really the first study that demonstrates that pattern. And, I, and, it, and, we, and we certainly need to replicate it for industrial facilities, uh, power plants, all sorts of things. Uh, but based on commercial hazardous waste facility, I think the pattern is pretty, pretty clear. There's, there's been a, um, a pattern of, of doing this. And I, by the way, that, thank you for asking that question because it gives me an opportunity to address something that I get asked a lot. Uh, uh, especially if the term environmental racism is used, um, is it intentionality? And, and I'll tell you, that's, that's got to be such a tricky topic or, or concept, concept because the Supreme Court in its rulings has made it almost impossible uh, to litigate on base, uh, environmental justice cases based on civil rights laws because you actually have to prove intentionality. And the thing is, how do you prove an attitude? How do you get into somebody's mind and know whether I, they did it because of, out of hatred? But that's so that bar is so high you can't even use it. So, and I, I would say, Dr. Mohai, is it because it's intent to harm uh, black people or people of color? I don't think it's so much like it's an intent to harm them as it is not caring if you do harm them, because I think the primary motive is profit, you know, money before people's welfare. In fact, I was thinking about, let's redefine environmental racism as, you know, uh, the philosophy of money before people's uh, welfare, because it's not caring. And I thought one of the things that made Flint unique, in addition to, it, you know, affecting so many people, is the evidence linking the contamination yeah. with the lead poisoning. 
So I've heard a lot of times, well, it, you know, uh, uh, Southwest Detroit, which fortunately got some coverage in Newsweek, it's tough in those kind of situations to get that kind of coverage because questions are always raised, well, how do you know people's cancer or asthma has to do with kids inhaling secondhand smoke? How do you know that the cancer isn't because of a bad diet or lack of access to health care? In plant, lead poisoning yeah. isn't caused by smoking, it isn't caused by a bad diet. So I think it, I think the, the clarity about the cause and effect linkage is especially clear, and I, and, I, I, and I have to think that that's one of the reasons why, too, that that's gotten some covered. But it's also raised the question of, are there other flints out there? And, I, and I, it's not just the contaminated water, but I think it should get us to thinking about all, everywhere we live about uh, the lead in the water. But, but there are a lot of cases out there where you have predominantly uh, uh, people of color communities, uh, predominantly poor, that have a severe environmental problem and are getting entirely ignored. ignored. Right. Exactly. There's still news almost every week related to the Flint water crisis and the state of Michigan. So the latest from the Detroit Free Press is that the ACLU of Michigan plans to announce a lawsuit October 18th related to the lead-contaminated drinking water in Flint. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can read about how researchers got silkworms to spin super strong silk by feeding them carbon nanotubes. And check out the article about how the four presidential candidates answered questions about their science policies. Don't forget to follow us on the Twitters, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.